Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. I'd like to introduce Weep Klaus Smits from Leiden University in, in the Netherlands. Uh, Weep's talk is entitled Metronidazole for the Treatment of C. difficile on the Way Out? Question mark. Thank you, Stu, for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today and to talk about some of the recent developments with respect to an old antimicrobial. We've heard a lot about new antimicrobials already, so I figured we'll put a little bit of balance by uh, and talking a bit about an old antibiotic. So I have nothing to declare with respect to the contents of this uh, presentation. Metronidazole, as you probably are aware of, has for a long time been a staple in the treatment of C. difficile infections. Um, but recent years have seen the development of uh, new drugs and also careful comparisons with, for instance, drugs like vancomycin. And from these studies, it has appeared that metronidazole actually has a lower efficacy than uh, those drugs. Uh, in addition to that, there is a trend of de decreasing efficacy over time. So in recent years, uh, the efficacy seems to be even a little bit lower um, than in previous years. Resulting from this has been a guideline change for both the ITSA-SHE as well as ESCMID since uh, this year, um, where metronidazole is no longer indicated as first-line treatment. Yet, there is no clear evidence uh, for the involvement uh, of resistance or an increase in resistance, despite the fact that these drugs have been used for so many years. And here I just want to point out that the definitions of, of resistance with respect to metronidazole differ depending on um, which breakpoint you use, either CLSI or UCAS. Metronidazole resistance is complicated, and that is in part because um, it's not a drug that is uh, routinely tested for in the clinic. Um, and potentially, as a result of this, um, major differences has, have been reported in uh, resistance rates. So they differ for C. difficile between 0 and almost 20%. As I pointed out, the definitions are not uniform, and in addition, they are not tailored towards C. difficile specifically, so generally, people use the breakpoints that have been defined for anaerobes. Uh, for C. difficile, there has been unstable and inducible and heterogeneous resistance reported, um, and the large differences that I refer to might have been the result of differences in methodology, um, differences in strain types, or in geographical locations. And it's further complicated by the fact that we don't really know what causes resistance in the case of C. difficile. And uh, for the descriptions in literature of metronidazole resistance strains, 
Um, these are the descriptions that very frequently lack an appropriate, um, i.e., as isogenic comparator in these experiments. Um, so they are really more like case descriptions rather than uh, careful comparisons of a susceptible and a resistant isolate. Now that changed um, two years ago um, when we studied um, a patient with recurrent CDI due to a ribotype 20 strain. Um, and in the course of um, following this patient, we noted that it was a phenotypic switch from the strain being susceptible to metronidazole to a strain that was resistant to metronidazole. And we sequenced the strains from this patient, and we found that the sole difference between the susceptible and resistant isolates was the presence of a plasmid, a small 7 kb plasmid, which we now call PCD metro. So we went on um, to actually show that this plasmid is um, causally related to the metronidazole resistance. And we did this by manipulating it such that we can could introduce it into a laboratory strain of C. difficile. Uh, and this is a ribotype 12 strain. And uh, you can see that if you, um, if you introduce the strain uh, into this, uh, the, the plasmid into the strain, it now is, becomes resistant. Uh, you can see this in the middle panel and upper right, um, whereas it, it's not the case if you just take a part of the plasmid. So there's really something on the plasmid that is responsible for the resistance. And uh, if you then compare the laboratory strain before we introduced um, the, uh, uh, the plasmid, then you can see here um, that with increasing amounts of metronidazole, uh, growth is pretty much arrested. Whereas if you have the plasmid present, you can grow it all the way up to 8 micrograms per uh, mil and it still grows fine. So um, the, the plasmid is not only found in this ribotype or 20 strain, which we identified in our uh, medical school. Um, in fact, we um, uh, asked for strains to be sent to us from uh, other publications that describe metronidazole resistant strains. And in the vast majority of cases, we could show that this plasmid is present. And this is the case in ribotype 10 strains. So it's very abundant in non-toxinogenic strains like ribotype 010. But importantly, we also found it in a ribotype 027 strain, which is one of the epidemic types. Uh, so it seems to be present in diverse PCR ribotypes. Since then, we have implemented in our routine diagnostics laboratory a PCR that screens for the presence of the plasmid. And in doing so, we were actually able to identify uh, in our diagnostics routine uh, strains that demonstrate this stable resistance to metronidazole. So we now have uh, identified it not only in a PCR toxigenic ribotype 020 strain, but more recently also in a ribotype 5 strain. So here I just want to take a moment to reflect on the fact that this metronidazole resistance is plasmid-based. Um, because I think plasmids in general have been overlooked as an important factor in the pathogenesis of C. difficile. Um, studies from our lab and others over the past years have shown that plasmids actually occur in a large number of C. difficile strains, likely upwards of 10%, both from humans and from animals. Um, and that uh, plasmids fall into different so-called plasmid families. For most of these, we don't know um, what the phenotypic consequences of plasmid carriage. But besides metronidazole, plasmids have now also been implicated in re reduced susceptibility to vancomycin, possibly related to treatment failure. And uh, it has also been hypothesized that certain plasmids might carry toxin genes, so toxin B and binary toxin, in several clades of C. difficile. Uh, from all these studies, 
um, indirect evidence has been accumulating that transmission occurs in host during treatment. So not all the cases of metronidazole resistance are explained by PCD Metro. We also found strains um, which tested as resistant to metronidazole blacklasmid. And in studies that I don't have time to describe in, in a lot of detail, we uh, showed that this is actually due to the presence of a medium component, more specifically heme. And heme uh, incorporation in, into the medium um, results in elevated levels, uh, MIT levels for metronidazole. And this is relatively specific for metronidazole because we don't see it um, in, uh, uh, for instance, uh, when we do an e-test for vancomycin. And this has been confirmed also in independent studies from other labs, such as the Hurdle lab. And uh, what is interesting is that their work actually also provides a possible link to treatment failure. So they observed that strains that under these conditions uh, with an MIC greater than one milligram per liter, um, they are more frequently found in patients that failed on metronidazole treatment. So there may be a link, even though these strains technically would not qualify as being called resistant. Now, plasmids um, are, can be transmissible, and chromosomes are not. Um, but from several studies, we now also have um, a clear grasp that some of the chromosomal genes may be involved in resistance to metronidazole. Uh, from our own lab, uh, we've shown that um, a SNP mutation in heme-responsive gene HSMA um, is associated um, with uh, medium-dependent resistance uh, uh, against metronidazole, both in strains that carry uh, PCD metroplasmids and that don't. And from a large US study, um, based on the Modify 1 and 2 uh, uh, clinical studies, it was found that a gene that has similarity to a so-called nitroamidazole reductase or NIM gene uh, was also associated uh, with metronidazole resistance. And this was across different PCR ribotypes. The HSMA SNP was specifically for PCR ribotype of 10. So HSMA has been shown to bind heme, um, and it's possible that this NIM gene also binds heme and in that way provides a logical explanation for why heme is so important in antimicrobial anti susceptibility testing for C. diff. So to come back to my uh, original question, is metronidazole on the way out? Um, I think it could be because of its inferior treatment, its inferior treatment modality, and we now know of several possible resistance pathways, and some of these are even transmissible, uh, so are particular concern. But on the other hand, the link with treatment failure is still fairly unclear. Uh, if we look at compliance with the guidelines, it's, fre it's frequently suboptimal. So in the graph um, here, you can actually see that uh, after the guideline change, um, the use of metronidazole actually only went down marginally. And in addition, in some situations, it may not be feasible to use a recommended first-line drug uh, because of reasons such as price or availability, for instance. So maybe it's on the way out, but it's certainly not out of the door yet, I would say. So the take-home messages from my talk today are um, that current guidelines um, are based on reduced clinical efficacy and therefore no longer recommend the use of metronidazole. Um, there are better treatment modalities available in the form of vancomycin or fedexomycin, for instance. And that we now have multiple pathways for metronidazole resistance as the deficit described, but we don't quite understand yet how they work 
and what the contributions are to treatment failure. It's not so clear cut yet. Um, but the two um, mechanisms that I highlighted are transferable plasmids as well as chromosomal single nucleotide polymorphisms. And a final important point from my perspective is that we really need tailored susceptibility testing with a special focus on the content of heme in these media uh, in order to, um, to get to grips with what, what metronidazole resistance actually means um, in uh, for patient treatment. So it is key to integrate data, not only on AST, on phylogeny, on the genome sequences of the Cedestasville strains, um, as well as treatment outcome. And ideally, we'd want to integrate this also with patient genetics to see what the contribution is of the patient genome uh, to treatment uh, success. So with that, I'll wrap up. I'll thank all the people that are involved in the work, in particular in the plasmid work, um, both of Bastian Hornung and a PhD student of mine, Ilse Buchhout, um, but as well many of our national and international collaborators and the people from our lab. Thanks. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. And I'd like to introduce uh, David Lyerly, who is the uh, from Tech Lab. And the title of David's talk is a four-pronged threat, Clostridioides difficile infection, antibiotics, the flu season, and COVID-19. And we're going to do all this within his allotted time, I think. Uh, Steve, thanks for your introduction. Thanks to the uh, CDF Foundation. Nancy, thank you especially for your kind invitation to participate. I can tell you that your efforts are much appreciated by all of us. So first of all, I want to cover some of the basics about Clostridioides difficile infection, CDI. Some of these you've already heard, but I really think it's important to emphasize the challenge of CDI to our healthcare systems. There are hundreds of thousands of cases of CDI each year in the U.S. and in Europe. These numbers will bounce around some, but we know there are huge numbers of them. There are tens of thousands of deaths caused by CDI, by this infection. In most cases of CDI, it's going to become inflammatory. The toxins produced by this organism, toxin A, toxin B, damage the intestinal mucosa. They not only cause direct damage to the gut mucosa, but they also trigger severe inflammation. Probably one of the biggest challenges is that relapsing, recurrent CDI is very challenging. Patients can relapse multiple times, and of course, each time that happens, the health of the patient continues to decrease. The cost mentioned earlier to our healthcare are really staggering, billions of dollars, higher than the cost that you see with MRSA, and CDI now is the most common hospital-acquired infection. One reason, and it's been alluded to before, is that spores of this organism are very difficult to kill. They get spread through the hospitals and they persist. Also, there are variants that are showing up 
They evolve either by mutational events or by recombination events. Robin type 027 is the best known variant. And keep in mind that it became resistant to fluoroquinolones by single base mutations in the gyrase gene. And it's called significant numbers of uh, outbreaks in Europe and North America. These variants continue to arise around the world and CDI now is a global disease. And after listening to uh, Carrie Davies talk this morning, uh, Ribotype 181 from the community, I think it would be great to understand, to compare and contrast 181 with Ribotype 027. This analysis of data from 2020 provides an overview of community versus healthcare associated cases. By healthcare, I'm talking about hospital acquired. The purple bars represent healthcare associated cases, meaning hospital acquired. And you can see that the numbers, purple bars, the hospital acquired cases are decreasing from 2011 to 2017. This is a good thing. Um, the orange bars are the community acquired. They are increasing. That's not a good thing. And uh, I do want to point out that the numbers that are in this graph from this uh, publication do take into account the possible overdiagnosis by NAT testing. So those numbers do, are reflected in the graph. The bottom line is that we still have hundreds of thousands of cases of CDI each year in the U.S., also in Europe. Many patients are going to relapse. Tens of thousands may die from this infection. So I'm going to branch out and cover several infections in my presentation. I want to try and show the progression of how these diseases may relate to each other. And the ones that I'm going to cover are shown in this slide. <clears throat> they include primary viral respiratory infections, such as those caused by influenza and during COVID. I also want to cover secondary, secondary bacterial pneumonias caused by staph, streptococcus, and finally how these are linked to infections caused by C. diff. Let's take a look at three different flu seasons. First, I have listed as the 2009 H1N1 flu epidemic. Hundreds of thousands of people died from this infection. Many developed secondary bacterial pneumonias caused by, by staph, streptococcus, and other uh, pathogens such as Klebsiella. The data in the second block probably uh, resemble more of a typical flu season. Uh, this is the season prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic. There were tens of millions of cases of flu. There were tens of thousands of deaths caused by flu. The third block represents flu season during COVID. This represents a very unusual flu season. Flu illnesses were down more than 98%. There were very few deaths. The ones that I've read about were primarily pediatric in nature. This very dramatic drop, of course, was reflected, cause, occurred because of the mitigation efforts that were put in place. Masks, social distancing, very few social gatherings, and so forth. All these were put in place for the pandemic, and of course, they worked for uh, the flu season as well. Okay, the data presented in this slide reiterates the information that I just, uh, that I just discussed. In particular, the data show the typical flu season 2019-20 prior to COVID with a dramatic decrease. Again, it's the mitigation efforts that were put in place that caused this decrease. 
When a viral respiratory infection develops, there's a cascade of events that can lead to secondary bacterial pneumonia. The damage caused by the viral infection and the inflammation that ensues opens up new sites for bacterial adhesion. There's an impairment of the host immune responses, and there is significant level of tissue destruction. All of these events set in motion secondary bacterial infections caused by strep, staph, Klebsiella, Haemophilus, Pseudomonas, and some others. And because of this, there's an increased use of antibiotics. This increased use of antibiotics occurs during winter months when rates of flu and other uh, viral respiratory infections are more prevalent. Uh, I've mentioned the primary viral and secondary infections. Because of this life-threatening occurrence, antibiotics may be given as a preemptive strike to fight off the onset of pneumonia, or they may be given therapeutically. The antibiotics can be given for extended periods of time. They can be given for short term. They can be given for extended periods of time. They can be given for short term. Either way, the antibiotics will lead to dysbiosis of the intestinal microbiota. And by dysbiosis, I'm talking about the imbalance of the gut flora. Let's take a closer look at some of these antibiotics and their effect on the intestine. Uh, there are many studies, huge numbers of studies that have looked at this. Much of this is being uh, presented in the symposium here. Studies uh, look at the diversity of the microbiota and in turn the functions of the gut. There's an upregulation of inflammation and there's an increase in the gut permeability. This effect may be uh, transitory, but it also can lead to long-term effects. And some of these effects probably mimic or trigger the onset of irritable bowel syndrome. I've listed two specific studies here as an example. Treatment with uh, ciprofloxacin can lead to a significant reduction in the diversity. Uh, and you can see this in many different studies. Treatment with chlorothromycin and microlid also reduces the antibiotic, uh, the uh, diversity. And keep in mind that these antibiotics are setting the stage for a C. diff infection. Ellis talks just a minute about the association of CDI with flu. So with an increase in antibiotic use during flu season, there's going to be an increase, uh, uh, increase in the number of cases of CDI. And I want to focus on three studies. The study by Paul Green et al. in 2010 demonstrated that flu illnesses preceded CDI and that you could see about a 20% increase in the number of CDI cases about six to eight weeks after flu season. Second study, the one by Gilka et al., also linked seasonality of flu season with CDI. This also was linked with respiratory syncytial virus, and both were associated with increased uses of antibiotics. Then the third study by Brown et al. corroborated the findings of Holgren and showed that CDI cases lagged behind pneumonia and flu season. Again, antibiotic was the triggering event. Some of these cases of CDI lasted for up to a year, basically the post-infectious uh, IBS that I've mentioned. So if we summarize flu season and CDI, we can see that seasonal and pandemic respiratory diseases are complicated by bacterial pneumonia. About a third of the persons who develop flu 
may develop secondary bacterial pneumonia. Antibiotics may be used empirically. They may be given therapeutically. And they're certainly needed, but they will have this very dramatic effect on the gut flora. They'll decrease the diversity, and it could lead to an overuse and the appearance of antibiotic-resistant strains. So antibiotic treatment during typical flu season may result in a 20% increase in CDI, and this could translate into tens of thousands of cases of CDI. Now I'd like to look at CDI during COVID. And the reason I wanted to take a look at this initially was because antibiotics were so heavily used during the initial stages of the pandemic. Those are basically were no other treatments. This overuse raised concerns about uh, increased rates of CDI. And there have been many studies looking at, and I'm sorry, there have not been many studies looking at uh, CDI during COVID, so there's not a lot of data, but there are several studies that I want to touch on. One was done at the VA in Ann Arbor, Michigan, another at Beaumont in Ireland, and a third done at UV Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia. The bottom line from all of these studies is that CDI rates remain stable, that when, trend, that when uh, patient admissions were, in, were decreased, there was a concomitant decrease in CDI, and basically the mitigation efforts that were put in place to reduce COVID work for hospital-acquired infections, including CDI. There's not really any surprise in that, but we do need additional studies being performed, and they're probably underway now to look at these numbers uh, following the outbreak with Delta, uh, with the Delta variant. So with uh, secondary bacterial pneumonia, those have not been studied nearly in as much detail in COVID patients as they have in flu patients. But uh, there have been several studies, a small meta-analysis that was done in 2020, and they noted that there was a 15% mortality rate recorded in patients with secondary bacterial pneumonias in COVID patients. And, and Staphylococcus aureus and Klebsiella were the predominant causes. In these cases, antibiotics were given prophylactically. They were also given therapeutically. And What's really scaring about this is that more than a third of patients were infected with antibiotic-resistant strains. So I've been talking about COVID and respiratory infections, but I want to branch out a bit and talk a bit uh, about SARS-CoV-2 virus in the intestine. But keep in mind that the receptor for this virus is not only in the lungs, it's also scattered throughout the body and other organs, especially in the intestine. And we know that diarrhea occurs in about 25% of COVID patients. Other respiratory uh, viruses are known to cause diarrhea. So this observation is not really a surprise. But what is surprising is that there are recent findings that COVID patients may actually develop a dysbiotic intestinal microbiota. Remember when I talk about a dysbiotic microbiota, I'm talking about a reduction in the diversity of uh, the mi microbiota. And this decrease in diversity is really critical. The diversity is what keeps C. diff out of uh, the intestine. So I've listed some of the changes in the purple box. There are some decreases in the levels of, of our uh, protective organisms. More studies are needed, but it raises the question of how dysbiosis may contribute to the cytokine storm since the intestinal flora are known to have a very significant effect on host inflammation. 
in particular, bacteria uh, in our normal, healthy microbiota produce byproducts, and these byproducts are anti-inflammatory. So it's very important that we understand how this operates. So this, these questions that I've put out there actually lead to additional questions about whether viral respiratory infections that cause intestinal dysbiosis can actually be a triggering event for a C. diff infection. And I'm talking about this occurring in the absence of antibiotics being used. Antibiotics is well established to cause dysbiosis. So we know that happens, but can a viral infection without the antibiotics actually trigger something like this? And we know that dysbiosis is this triggering event. So to tie this together a little bit, we know that COVID patients can be co-infected with C. diff. We know that CDI can occur in COVID patients. And this has been shown by Dr. Tina Chopra, who's on this panel uh, today. There's a very recent report that COVID can actually be resolved by restoring a healthy intestinal microbiota. This is only very preliminary, and I want to emphasize that some of the panelists here pointed out the very important point that fecal transplants, if they are being used, they can actually transfer uh, this, this virus. And this is actually pointed out in the talk by Dr. Tihani yesterday. So in summary, a patient who develops a viral respiratory infection can develop secondary bacterial pneumonia that requires antibiotic treatment. As a result of the treatment, patient now faces a third infection, this time a potentially life-threatening intestinal infection. And I want to throw another one in the mix, too. We've been talking some about post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome that can be triggered by different types of intestinal infections. These certainly can be triggered by the viral infections, but we now know that C. diff can also trigger this IBS-like condition that we know very little about, and this condition can go on for years. Fortunately, the mitigation efforts that have been put in place for COVID have all reduced all of these different types of infections. So that's the, the good point about the medication that's being used. So in conclusion, we know that an initial respiratory infection can trigger a series of subsequent infections. We know that all the, the infections that can be triggered do involve host inflammation. Flu and COVID can be associated with the inflammation through cytokine storms. Secondary bacterial infections are going to cause additional inflammation. And of course, if the patient develops CDI because of the antibiotic treatment and dysbiosis, there's going to be toxin-mediated damage to the intestinal mucosa. These toxins have the ability to internalize with cells along the lining of the gut mucosa. When they do this, it shuts down cytoskeletal system in the cells. It leads to death of the cells. That triggers inflammation. But the toxins both have the ability to trigger inflammation by other mechanisms as well. They cause the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And there are inflammasomes that get triggered. They cause more inflammation. All of this is a way to, to say that multiple diseases and host inflammation can be triggered by a single respiratory event. It's obvious we have a lot to learn about these interactions. We need to learn more, though, about the intestinal microbiota and its effects on the gut uh, intestine, the inflammation, and uh, how the, the inflammation is involved in the different types of infections.
Keep in mind that the host can respond in a very positive way if it's healthy to minimize inflammation. Uh, if the uh, host microbiota is not healthy, then you can get inflammatory results uh, popping up. Uh, this can occur through short-chain fatty acids and also through short peptides that are uh, produced by the host flora. So I'll end on that point. I want to thank the Foundation again for the opportunity to participate. And Nancy, thanks again for your hard work. Stu? Thank you, David. Very, very nice talk. This has been a very intriguing and, frankly, I predicted different outcome here with COVID and C. diff, and primarily because of the data with other respiratory infections, as you mentioned. So um, it, it's still interesting. I, I, exactly why that is. Some of the reasons may be, uh, as you say, but uh, we'll see. Thank you very much. Nice talk. The next speaker on our panel today is, is Maureen Spencer from the University of Mass Medical School. And the title of her talk is Aerosol Transmission of Pathogens, the Problem and Solutions. And thank you to the C. diff Foundation for asking me to be a speaker. I'm actually going to be focusing on a new technology um, from a company called Aerobiotics that can help deal with this aerosol transmission of pathogens, which we know we can also have C. dysphorus be aerosolized in the environment. Um, these are a couple of my websites. The7sbundle.com is actually a surgical stewardship program, a foundation to one. Again, a lot of talks at AON and uh, different conferences on this, and in the first step, it means do you have a safe OR? So a lot of the speaking that I do is on OR air contamination and trying to control the amount of contaminants that are floating in operating rooms that might land in an incision. Well, the problem with the airborne pathogens is that they can move around and end up on surfaces. We can, you know, get them resuspended into the air. The surfaces can get touched by healthcare workers, patients, visitors. Um, we can also have organisms coming off the body that, you know, with coughing, breathing, shedding off the body. You know, in one day, our body releases a million skin squames. Although those are little things that you see sometimes on your clothes or you might see floating, you know, through a, a ray of sunlight. And a million of those, on a daily basis, a million have bacteria. So that's our biggest challenge and why, you know, one of the things we try to do in the operating room is have really good adherence to surgical attire, for instance and have all the skin covered up, and it's been a challenge at times. But we can also have things moving off as airborne bioaerosols, as the SARS-CoV-2, um, not just droplets, but bioaerosols, and then lead to further inhalation or settling on surfaces um, around the environment, causing different kinds of transmission. So these small particle aerosol transmissions are spat. A virus that can remain suspended by aerosols and travel distances generally around three to six feet. So as the droplets, the larger droplets you see in this picture that have a lot of liquid and mucus in them, uh, gravity pulls them down towards the earth about six feet out, three to six feet. However, the smaller ones that desiccate or dry up can turn into these small bioaerosols that can actually remain suspended. Uh, one study found up to three hours, and they can be infective. So that, I think, right now is our biggest challenge in, in kind of controlling this pandemic is that we've been focusing on gowns and gloves and masks and, you know, all this other PPE and environmental disinfection. But, you know, if you get a group of people sitting in a small restaurant or in a church singing and, you know, small enclosed airspace that's being shared, 
yeah, these bioaerosols are going to get around, and that's going to cause inhalation and some transmission through that route. So MRSA can be transmitted through respiratory aerosols. More often, it's present on these skin scales that I talked about, and it can be continuously shed from the body. Uh, there was a fascinating study that looked at bed making and found how it can transiently aerosol. You think about taking sheets and flipping sheets, and then the healthcare workers when you might bring that sheet, that the contaminated sheet, with the 10 million skin screens I talked about coming off the body every day, holding it up, up against their uniform while they move to try to find where the, their laundry hamper is, you can start to see where these things start to get cross-contaminated through hands, through clothing, or up through the air. And after they become transiently airborne, they can fall to the floor within one to two meters if larger or smaller ones can potentially move out to the nurse's station. You know, some fascinating studies have been done about this. We're thinking that the floor um, is not a source of contamination, but as um, Dr. Donsky said, some fascinating studies showing that, yes, indeed, they can move around. I mean, we've got increased CLABS, these central line associated infections this year since the um, COVID outbreak. And what was happening is many ICUs, so they could cut down on the number of times they were going into the bedsides and using PPE. They moved the pumps, the IV pumps, with all their meds out into the corridors and had anywhere from 10 to 12 foot pieces of tubing connected going into the room so that they could work the pumps outside the room. So I'm sure a lot of the injection ports, people were stepping on these, you know, uh, they were all over the floor, these tubing. So we, we just get a lot of challenges that have happened, unique challenges with this particular outbreak. But studies have also shown that the C. diff spores can be transmitted transiently through this aerosolization, such as the plume that comes off of toilets. It can move out to about six feet. You know, when you, one of our recommendations and requirements is not to have any supplies two feet around the sink. Now, some hospitals put plexiglass up, or the rule is nothing can be near the sink. So as that sink opens up and hits the drains, which the drains often get contaminated, you can have a cross plume come up and contaminate the supplies. Many hospitals do not put lids on their toilets. If you go into ICUs and you see the toilets, they don't have lids on them. So that's a challenge if that patient has C. diff and those spores are being pushed off every time they flush the toilet in the room. So the transmission is from direct contact when one individual directly transmits it to another through physical contact. Indirect transmission is when we're passing items, contaminated items, or using contaminated equipment like Things as simple as a stethoscope or contaminating uh, computers on wheels that we go from room to room with, with, with hands, and then, you know, next person comes along and they use it and they cross-contaminate. For the SARS-CoV-2 virus, in the beginning we thought it was going to be a lot like influenza and it was going to be a droplet transmission, which indeed it is. But then we started to realize that this was a little bit more challenging because it turns into these bioaerosols. And then we understood that in healthcare, we have a lot of aerosol-generating procedures that are done. For instance, intubation, extubation, suctioning, bronchoscopies. But even in the home environment, a patient who's on nebulizer treatments or CPAP could potentially aerosolize the SARS-CoV-2 virus into the environment. So air cleaners started to show up on the market maybe about six years ago is when I saw the first one presented at APIC. So we've just, this is kind of new technology where many of our studies showed when we did environmental air sampling or we, we cultured environmental sources plus the air, we knew there was contamination, but to be honest with you, we really didn't have any technology to use. There's some really unique ones that are out now on the market. Uh, one of them is a dry hydrogen peroxide, 
Um, they've been at the CDIF conference, uh, a company called Synexis. Um, this was developed by the Army engineers back in the early 2000s for the anthrax outbreak. It's now being used by the Pentagon, um, some of the VAs. It's in all the Chick-fil-A's. It's in a lot of the chicken houses in Georgia. Uh, they've got a decrease in mold and fungus, so the, the chicks are more alive in school systems, universities. Next year, they're going to focus a little bit more on healthcare. although some of the hospitals that I know, St. Jude's, Universal Health Services, has put them into the EDs, uh, break rooms. So this is a un unique technology, as well as the high-efficiency particle air or HEPA filtration with, combined with UV UVC. So not only is it purifying the air by taking the particles out, but as it goes through the HEPA filter, it kills them with the UVC. So that should be considered part of an engineering control, maybe through the EOC committee, Environmental Care Committee, that they look at should we be using some of these new innovative technologies? So this novel technology, as I mentioned, combines, it's unique because it's UVC plus HEPA filtration, and it's all contained in this contamination collection cartridge technology that eliminates both particulates and microorganisms. For instance, in the operating room, with laser and electrocautery, we have what's called smoke plume. And the smoke plume can have not only other kinds of irritants in it that can cause irritation in the respiratory tract, but human papillomavirus, for instance. So it actually, in the operating room, can create what's called a clean donut. Uh, they place this device in the corner of the room, and it literally just scrubs the air and disinfects the air. So some of the studies are showing that it will reduce the bacterial levels about 50 to 60%. You know, and then you have your EDS in-between room cleaning, and at the end of the day, they have the terminal disinfection of the room. And in one study, they actually found an overall rate of prosthetic joint infections of over 500 osteoplasty procedures was reduced um, at a statistically significant level. It also reduces the risk of airborne SARS-CoV-2 transmission, an improvement in room ventilation, uh, which is advocated, you know, UVC and as well as HEPA by CDC and WHO as a supplement to your air filtration and disinfection. In a recent study testing the efficacy of this type of technology, they found a 100% reduction or elimination of SARS-CoV-2 virus in 15 trials when they compared it to two other control devices, one in an active device and one that had UVC only, where they only were able to reduce it by 40%. They also have a solution for classrooms and offices that are less than 400 square feet called the germ zone. Um, in this situation, is just air purification. Uh, this device can do up to is a 400 square foot. It's sound levels like 55 decimals. Um, this also has um, in the unit the UVC radiation. Doesn't have the HEPA filtration, but it has the confined and contained UVC, so there'd be no harm to any of the healthcare workers or patients that would be near this device. Many times, these are placed over a door, for instance, or you know, in a classroom, so that they can help to purify the air. Another device they have for greater than 400 square feet, I think I heard this goes up to about 1,700 square feet, is a portable air purification system. This one does include both the HEPA and ultraviolet light. Eliminates more than 99% of viruses, bacteria, and spores. Um, shields the ultraviolet light system again so it's safe um, for occupants in the area. And this is getting um, used in a lot of school systems and universities. So that's my presentation on new innovative technologies that are being used um, in the pandemic. Uh, many of these devices are being put in emergency rooms or COVID units. 
um, in or break rooms. I know that some hospitals have put them into break rooms. So thank you very much for letting me present. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com.